1: Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
0: Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. New customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z-ZIBBY20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that i've been wearing on every flight that i've taken on this tour i have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater several dresses i even wore on corny america check it out jay mclaughlin thanks so much .com and definitely check out those shows as well. Gabriel Zevin is the best-selling New York Times author of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. You may not have been able to have missed this book because it's gotten so much press absolutely everywhere and is like the darling of the year with so many accolades and everything else. In addition to Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, Gabrielle has written The Storied Life of A.J. Fikri and also wrote The Screenplay for That, which is a movie, and several other novels. She has also written books for young readers, including the award-winning Elsewhere. Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for joining. I'm
2: Zibby. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. That's quite a library you have back there. Thank you. Yes, this is my office. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's great. All
0: the way around. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks.
2: You really committed to the, the color arranging lifestyle.
0: You know, that shelf that like never moves. So I've had it <laughs> like that for like two years and then I use these, like, these bookshelves. Others, to be honest, even these are filling up pretty quickly. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, whatever. Yes, I'm committed to that there. And I like it.
2: (laughs) It looks beautiful. Um, Yeah, no, at one point, I got rid of so many books of mine. And frankly, like, during a, you know, 2015 Marie Kondo bout... (laughs) (laughs) and I really feel regrets about it to be honest you know
0: I actually surprisingly (laughs) did also give away a lot of my books and I am so sad that I did that because I'm like what were they and I would have liked anyway
2: you know I mean, I had them really organized too. Like I had a, like, you know, I don't know if you remember this thing, library thing, where you could like scan in your barcodes and have it like all like organized. So I had like every, there was no organization problem with it, but I was just like, do I need all these books around? But it turns out I did, you know, but I still have a lot of books. I just mean, I think about some of the books I have, I parted with, you know? Yeah. And it's sad. It's sad. A moment for the books, you know? I had
0: a friend who I was going on vacation because everybody always asks me, even before the podcast, just I was always the person like, I'm going on vacation. What should I bring? I'm like, oh, take this, take this. And then she loved, and I gave her some of my like favorite books. And she came back and I was like, what did you think? And she's like, oh, I love them. And I was like, do you have the books? And she was like, oh no, I left them in the hotel. Yeah, I know.
2: I know. It hurt. It hurt. I gave my friend, like my writer friend, like, so I think writers generally are pretty casual with their, with their books because like, you just have so many books coming in all the time, especially if like you're at all known as, as I'm sure you get tons of just like galleys or just so many things are coming at you. But I let my friend, like my writer friend, a book that I really, really loved. I was like, this is a great book. And she never gave it back to me. And I was kind of like, I was kind of shocked. You know, (laughs) I was like, this is, it was like a hardcover of a thing that was a prize winner. And she just like, like she did manage, she did read it, but just never returned it, you know? But I feel, I mean, I don't feel, I feel casual, but my books are not casual, you know, anyway. I feel the same way. I totally get it.
0: And some I'm more attached to. Some have like personal, personal meeting and I
2: I don't know. If I lent it to you, I probably really liked it, you know, is the thing. Yes. Like I wouldn't give you something that I didn't think was great. Exactly. And especially for me, I mean, even after the horrible like Marie Kondo purge of like 2016, you know, for me, like the things I kept around were things I like go back to a lot too. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. Like books I wanted to like, you know, go into for research and what have you. Yeah. But.
0: Or like the original copies that like when I first got it. Right. That have been, or you know,
2: it's funny. Like some of those will start to like fall apart, and you can barely use them as objects anymore, too. But yeah, I don't think books like it. You know, anyway, I actually loved Marie Kondo. Not to talk more about Marie Kondo, (laughs) but I loved that book when it came out. Like I was on book tour at the time on another book, and it was in all of the stores. And, um, you know, so I actually thought it was quite a good read, even before it became like a show and like tons of people doing it. I thought, you know, this is really interesting. Like, you know, it shows you how to part with things, you know, which is difficult, I think, for almost everyone, you know. So I did think that book was actually quite a good read. But on the subject of books, I I think it fails, you know. She was like, like, you know, photograph or write down passages from certain books, but you don't need to keep the whole book, you know, was one of the things in it, for instance, you know. No, no.
0: I like I, I just look at a book and the whole thing comes like floating back. you know, all the right. scenes and people, and uh, no, that's why I ask, sometimes I have a hard time with ebooks, you know, because yeah. I'm reminded of them all the
2: time. Um, I have a really hard time with ebooks because you don't kind of know where you are in them either. you know, like okay. you know, if you're kind of remembering something spatially or visually, like when you're thinking about, you know, how far, through am I when this thing happened, or even kind of the abrupt surprise of an ending. If like you're on an ebook and it shows like, Hey, you're at 90%. And then it turns out the last 10% is actually like a sample chapter or something, yes. yeah. you know, yep. you're like, Oh no, it just, it just ended. But so it kind of, I think messes with your perception a lot, you know? Agreed. Yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, good. <laughs> but we did that. <laughs> I'm glad to know you were the first, uh, you know, an early adopter of Recondo and that, you know, perhaps your, your early enthusiasm is what set her on the trajectory. I
2: hope it was not because I honestly <laughs> think in the end, like there are like anything that becomes very popular, like there were great things about it. But I think, you know, a lot of people that kind of adopted it, maybe, you know, and even, you know, at, at a certain point, you know, you know, she herself opens up like a store and she starts selling more things. And the whole point is to get rid of yeah. things, you yeah. know. And, you know, like a thing I loved in her book, not to keep talking about this book from like seven years ago, was that, you know, she talked about how you really didn't ever need to buy things to organize. Like you should just kind of save your boxes and use those. And they were better than any sort of thing. And then like she ends up selling boxes, <laughs> you know, that kind um, of thing. I mean, the lore of consumer consumption.
0: <laughs> right? Like, bandwagon. you know, so I
2: think the book was good philosophically, but then yes. the brand became an entirely yeah. other other thing, you know.
0: I also really think that I don't know. After I have been a part of like cleaning out a few people who have lost like possessions, I feel like you yeah. look at your things in a whole new way. Like I think about that. Every oh time yeah. Something where I'm like, someone's going to have to figure out what to do with this thing after I'm dead. Like, what are they going to do? <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. about that all the time just to really,
2: yeah. Like what are they going to do with this? What, are they going to keep it? Like, where are they going to put it? Yeah, my it? mom had that reaction when they had to get rid of my grandmother's stuff. Like when she died, she was like, I just have to have my things in order, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think there's like a, was is this right? Remember there was a thing called like Swedish death cleaning? No, <laughs> I don't came remember out. that. Yes. It came, I didn't read this, but it came out after Marie Kondo. I forget what it's called, but it's like, it's called like Swedish death cleaning or something where you basically do exactly that. You prepare to die and that's your... <laughs> It's like the way you, I'm laughing, but it's not funny, but like you, you know, you organize your things in preparation for, for not being here anymore, you know? Well,
0: it does make you think twice about buying certain things or, or keeping certain things, right? It's just stuff someone has to go through on your behalf. It's sort of a pain.
2: Yeah, I know. Like who wants all that kind of piles of just stuff, you know, like it's a, it's, it would be burdened. You know, I think about like when my mom dies Or, you know, because people being mortal. But I think about it like, you know, how hard it will be for me to like get rid of certain things that are just even casual possessions of hers. You know, that kind of thing.
0: Well, and then Um, I think you realize too that the things you want to keep the most have nothing to do with the value of the thing itself. No, it doesn't. It's all about the sentimental and honestly the things I cling to for whoever's passed away, are the handwritten things, which is sad since no one handwrites anything. But if there's like a card that they sent or a letter they handwrote, like, that's like,
2: oh. Right, or just, like, I agree, you know, and kind of like the emails and the DMs, like the screenshots of those don't like do the same thing. I do think about the photos, by the way. You know, like, I don't know how many are in your, how many photos are in your photo library on like, you know, Apple or whatever right now. Like, I think like, at some point, should I actually clean those up? Do I feel like psychically burdened by having, you know, 15,000 photos? I just
0: opened it up. How do I know how many photos I have?
2: Um, let me tell you, I'll open mine. Okay. Hopefully Showing this won't crash us out.
0: out. <laughs> I don't know how I know. Uh, I think, let's see. I think at some point I could tell on my, this
2: is a really interesting podcast, how many photos, anyone <laughs> listening, how, how many photos? anybody listening, just send your report. Like, it doesn't. It's not actually apparent on this version, right? so I think we'll have to. I might have to look on my. Phone. We'll have to table but this lot. issue for now. The answer now. is
0: a lot, a lot, a lot.
2: The answer is definitely a lot.
0: Yeah, you know, I do. Like, though, I'm I can, really good about printing <laughs> albums. Are you good at that?
2: Not really. I don't yeah. think I've printed. And I mean, I used to print all the time, but not, not, not currently. No, um, yeah, and I, I kind of feel bad about that you you should. Okay, oh, I <laughs> no, just figured out. So if you're in are you if are you in Apple Library, click yes. on all photos at the top, all items, all and items and then like just kind of scroll yourself to the very bottom. And so it turns out I have 55,540 photos Whoa. and 490 videos.
0: Wait, hold <laughs> on. I'm going down. Oh. Wait, how many do you have? 55,540? <laughs> I have 169,966 photos and 9,825 videos. Right. So, but in any case, we have a lot of content. This is only from, this is only starting in 2008.
2: Yeah, same. Same. No, actually at some point, some of my things all, it was kind of creepy at some point, like it managed to find everything that had been on like an old desktop. So I do, and it, and anyway, it kind of scares me because like all of a sudden you'll see like a photo from 97 that was like a, a you know, a film photo and, you know, just on your phone show up and that's, and that's odd. <laughs>
0: no, I'm annoyed because I put all my prior photos on like discs.
2: Yeah. And I mean, like,
0: and now I don't know where the discs are. I can't access them. They're like years missing of my kids' lives, but it's okay. I mean, you could probably
2: re import them, you know, so and you can get up to 200,000.
0: I would. I, you know, yeah. I even have, see, all of these here are all my photo albums from before. I'm like obsessed look, with photos.
2: They look really organized and yeah. really like, I like appreciate the fact that you have the same kind of album like over and over again. Thank you. That, I have that kind difference. of organization yeah. is.
0: I, like, I started with red and then I yeah. went to maroon and navy and green. And then I stopped and started making them online. Right. <laughs>
2: I know, like, but it's funny, if you don't make things, it kind of feels like you're or even make things, buy things, things, you know, maybe because we're like from a capitalist culture, whatever. It you doesn't necessarily like you need some sort of sometimes tangible proof of having lived. I completely you know. agree. Which also some artifacts way,
0: is like yeah. writing books too. I also feel like that is some way to say, like, okay, I was here and now I've written this and or or it can like resuscitate people too right? Like this person is It can.
2: Um, you know, so for me though, like, you know, my first novel came out 17 years ago. And I think what I think about it is like just how different the person who wrote it is and the person I am now, you know, and so to publish across many years is to live with sort of ghost versions of yourself. And one of the things I think is, you know, like most people in life can kind of like softly transition into other points of, other points of view, other ways of thinking. But when you're a novelist, you have sometimes like proof that at least, you know, that person that you were felt such and such a way about such and such a thing at such and such a time, there's less like deniability that you ever, you know, thought that thing, you know?
0: (laughs) I love that notion of ghost selves. I was, I read like this old journal from when I was a kid to my kids Mm. and they were like the same age. And I was like, this is so crazy. It's like, the young version of me just meant my actual kids. And now they're all like having a virtual play date or something <laughs> you know
2: I mean? you Yeah. Can... And it's funny. Like, I remember being young that age and how much you like when you're journaling or whatever you are, you know, you think you live in the future, even when you're that age, especially when you're that age, you know, like how many times is like, do you, did you play that game? Like bash, you know, man, yeah, totally. shed house, totally. you know what all I mean? It's like, yep. it's like, you're obsessed with the future when you're, you know, 10, yes. <laughs> Yeah, probably up to like, I think college, I think even, you know, I think then it starts to feel like you're, you're in the future, you know, but I think for, you know, especially when you're quite young, it's, you know, you're both present and imagining what it's going to be like when you no longer say live with your parents or go to school every day or whatever it is, you know, what, what is that life going to look like for you? You know?
0: Yeah. We should do a new mash for like Middle to old age, you know, like nursing <laughs> oh home. Oh my god, nursing home, assisted living, <laughs> you know, like your uh, kids' house, or you know, I don't know, hospital. I don't know, N A K H or something. And then,
2: That's, like, you know, that would going? be horrifying. And, and scary, then, like, how many grandchildren you, know? you
0: have, and like, right. how many.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, all those kinds of things, like it would be basically terrifying, though you Pretty know much. yeah, I think I'd be super you know how like you do the thing with the circling, you know, I think I would yeah. be obsessed yep. with getting that the, that circling like right to avoid you know extended convalescence
0: or whatever it is, you know, totally, oh my gosh, I remember that like it was yesterday, yeah, doing all those drawings, and yeah, well, okay, so Gabrielle. <laughs> What is your book about? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I'm kidding. I, I tell listeners if they're still with us here and reminiscing back to MASH and, you know, now everybody's counted all their photos. Actually, on the social media post we put about this episode, everybody should put in how many photos they have. I'm totally curious about how many photos everybody has <laughs> in their photo albums. But anyway, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, bestselling novel. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, can you do your quick paraphrase? of
2: what it's about. It's funny. I don't feel like the book pitches quickly, you know, easily, even though I've been doing it for several months now. Um, so I have like the the quick version of a thing I say, which I know is deeply, you know, inadequate, which is uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is about love, art, video games, and time. And then I'm like, well, that's really vague. We should add something to that. So <laughs> it's the story of Sam Mainzer and Sadie Green, who um, have a 30-year friendship and artistic collaboration. And, you know... They're probably the most important people in each other's lives, but they aren't any of the usual suspects to each other. They're not spouses and they're not brother sister or, or anything like that. And I think the book kind of is trying to answer the question of what if the most important person in your life wasn't any of the usual suspects? What if it really was your colleague and your friend? You know.
0: I wanted more of an update on Sam's foot and the injury and all of the information about the car crash and the actual bone healing and how that all went down. <laughs> Did you consider that?
2: You know, it's funny, I was thinking very particularly of another book that I won't mention when I was when I was thinking about writing this one. And what I really wanted to write about was, I, I mean, I'll, just to back up, the reason that I wanted to write Sam as having a physical disability is because I thought that was one of the main reasons a person might be really drawn to video games, you know? And in a way, it gave gives him a way to be able-bodied without, though he is not, you know? And so that was, to me, a, a core drive for what he got out of playing. But in terms of the overarching structure of the book, I wanted to show how a person might just incorporate chronic pain into their life and go on, you know, that i think a lot of people are in pain and there are some there are some novels i have read that seem you know and i think pain when you are in it is defining but some of these novels have almost a byronic fatalism about what it means to have an injured body you know and you know that is not a healthy attitude because the thing we know about bodies is that they are fallible you know and so for me it was a conscious decision to have pain be very central for him for Probably, I would say, 65 percent of the book and then to have it kind of recede into the background because he had uh, taken these steps. And I think it's always there. You know, I think the key thing for me, like in terms of the research that came out of like amputations was thinking about phantom pain. Like that was the thing that really intrigued me, the notion of the fact that you can still feel a limb even after it's been you know, even after it's been amputated, you know? And so I think this to me was a metaphor, you know, for Sam's pain generally. And just, it, it's a thing that he always lives with that's always there and not there at the same time, you know? But no, I really wanted to, at some point, again, show that Sam had figured out how to, to live in his body, you know? And I think that was part of the the arc for it. So at a certain point in the novel, um, I don't think the issue was ever resolved for him, but I didn't want to, like you know, again tell the reader, and then you know that it was either hopeless, you know, or that it was again the the central the central part of him, you know. And and I and and by the way, I think the point at which he is kind of able to deal with his pain, which is kind of, again, this is a spoiler, but after his amputation, it does allow him to, I think, do other things in his career personally and professionally. You know, it sort of, it it opens him up in a way, but it is still always there. You know, it's still driving him. It's still, you know, making him need love and not always able to show love. And (laughs) everything about him is kind of centered around both the traumatic incident of the death of his mother and the pain that resulted from that, both physically and mentally, you know. So that was my thoughts about, about it. Okay.
0: And what about why link that, right? So Sam and Sadie really strike up this friendship in a place where they're both in pain for various reasons, him physically and her through the illness of her sister. And they bond that way. And obviously their relationship goes through so much along the way, but Sadie also has stuff from her past, not just her sister, but even what happens when you're the sister of someone who else who's going through some sort of physical major trauma and She had some line early on about how you know people just forgot about her, maybe that she'd only had this one chocolate pudding all day long or vanilla pudding all day long right 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 you forgot to even feed her and so what does it mean to go through something and also to overcome something like that as a child? How do you become? full-bodied, full full spirited adult carrying all of this stuff around.
2: I feel like, you know, it's funny we have these kind of benchmark ages of like you're an adult now and it's like 18 or 21 or the Japanese have 20. But I don't really feel like I had myself figured out till probably like 40. (laughs) You know? You don't even look like you're 40, by the way. Well I'm I'll be 45 next week. So no way. Oh my yeah, god. Head and write down. I'm but, but, you know, in the in the middle age mash game that we're going to play. I'm like I know that, right.
0: I'm like, that's yeah. why I guess that's why we're
2: doing that. I'm 46. So yeah, same uh, yeah. so we seven. are the same age, basically. Yep. You know, and so I I just feel like it's amazing and you only know this when you're older, I think, how much like of life you just is improvised. Do you know? What <laughs> how much things are thrown at you and you figure them out as you you go along and you do better and you do worse sometimes and hopefully you do better more than you do worse, you know? And so, you know, with regard to Sadie, I think you know, video games for her aren't to escape her body, it, they're to escape mortality, you know, and the fact that the death, I think, really loomed over her her childhood and in a really, you know, it's really present in her childhood because of her sister's illness, the idea that somebody can be taken from you at a moment's time. And obviously that's part of Sam's story too. And, you know, so I think in both of their stories, to me, they're about the traumas or just things, like you said, things, you know, the things people have that lead them to create other things, you yeah. know. And, you know, so, so much of Sadie's uh, early life goes into their early work, even though like a lot of obviously solution is based on her grandmother, but also Ichigo, which, you know, people in the book, people on the outside think is more Sam's game. It's deeply Sadie's game as well. You know, you you know, she, she is everybody in it as much as Sam is, even though like by appearances, uh, it seems as if it is, you know, Sam's game. What Um, about Emily Blaster? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Emily Blaster was meant to be the kind of game that a, some a, an enterprising student might make very close to the night before it was due you know <laughs> I <thought> that was <laughs> cool like, yeah, no, I think it, I, it's. I think it. I think it is cool, you know. And obviously, Emily Blaster like runs through, and Emily Dickinson runs through through the book. It's the, both the epigraph of the book, you know, that love is all there is, is all we know of love. It is enough. The freight should be proportioned to the groove. To me, it's a pretty good synopsis of the book in four lines. Um, the first two lines are kind of a riddle about love that are then solved by machine based metaphor. So I always think, well, you know, it, you can either write like a 500 page novel or you can write, you know, a four line poem and it can say kind of the same thing. <laughs> I think that's
0: kind of an advertisement for being a poet,
2: to be honest. (laughs) Right. That economy, you know, I mean, I like it's, I like the sprawl of a novel. I like to go live in it and to like live with characters and I like to be in it with them, you know, so poetry does one thing for me, you know, and I think it can be particularly expressive of very particular states, but... Um, you know, I I like what novels do too. You know, though I read a no, lot I'm of poetry, kidding. actually. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> I'm,
0: kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just for like of a course. cost cost benefit
2: <clears throat> <little> analysis here, <laughs> anyway. right? You know, they can pay you know you two hundred fifty thousand dollars a word.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I also really enjoyed your experience—not your experience, your depiction of Sadie when she is like sort of fighting for this relationship with Dove. Do you pronounce it Dove?
2: And I pronounce it Dove. Okay. Somebody had convinced me to pronounce it Dove, and I—and then I kind of was like, "Well, maybe he knows what he's talking about," but—but it it turns out it actually is Dove, confirmed by my audiobook producer. So good.
0: I mean, it's your character, but anyway, yes, Dove, and how what women in particular sometimes do. And you Mm -hmm. talked about like the objectification of Sadie, like even what was, she was wearing, like when you feel that waning interest. And so you kind of double down to try to attract the person, even though, you know, there's almost nothing you can do. And you just hope that maybe this one dress or this one outfit or this one, you know, come hither, look might change the mind of somebody whose mind is obviously already made up.
2: Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you know, I think it's funny. Dove is a character who sometimes I'll talk to somebody younger than me who will say, "Why isn't Dove punished more in the book?" You know, and I'm like, "Well, because the book ends in like 2013, you know. So somebody like Dove, as long as he kept his life pretty tidy, was fine until about 2017, you know. And so to me, that was the interest of writing about about this. I enjoyed writing Dove because. He is a person who is completely now, I guess you would say an anachronism, you know, (laughs) something in a modern setting, you know, where you could kind of be like big and, you know, borderline borderline or actually sexually harass your students, you know, and and it would have been fine, you know, as long as you didn't do, didn't cross certain lines, as long as you, you know, and I think he's always clear over and over again, like these technicalities, he says, like, you know, you were not my student when we started a relationship, you know, so he's like, I'm good, you know, but the abuse of power is obviously quite evident and still there in you know so the second section of the book is called influences and that's what it's what it's really all about how difficult it is for Sadie to ever escape the influences of Dove you know in terms of professionally and personally you know and so you know, I think, you know, the scene you probably, you bring up where she <laughs> kind of puts on her very nineties outfit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to go, to go seducing, you know, that she feels sorry for herself that she has worn right. that the Sadie at the beginning of, like, she feels bad that she has put this on to try to like win him, you know, yeah. and decides, I think I'll just keep my coat on. <laughs> but, but like, it's funny, like you, it, she's fighting for something that like, I think she's not even sure why she wants it, you know, at that point in time, you know, and to me, she just knows she doesn't want it, like, taken away from her. And, and I think I wanted to write about the kind of, like, draw, uh, you know, young women feel toward older people. And Dove is not, like, ancient. He's only yeah. eight years older than Ari. He's 28 to her, you know, 20, you know, or something like that, 19 to her, nineteen and 27. But he is a man in every way. He has a, you know, professional advancement. He has a wife. He has a child, you know. So, it. So I think she's drawn to all the kind of good qualities he has. He turns out to be quite a good teacher. And that coexists with, of course, you know, what is actually in an appropriate relationship, you know? Yeah. Well, brought me back.
0: (laughs) 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 All right. What's your next book going to be?
2: What can we? I really have I no idea about? at this point. I have no idea. And I over the years I have found that, like, um, you know, when my first book came out, I went out and I did all these interviews where I'm like, I'm I'm writing this book about vaudeville, you know. And uh, the more I talked about this book about vaudeville, the more I realized like I was never going to write this book about vaudeville, <laughs> you know. And so so that vaudeville book never happened. Some research happened on it and what have you. And and I think I, the the truth of it is I think you realize that the person who goes out and like promotes books and the person who writes books is actually a very different person. And so once you start kind of like pitching an idea, it kind of starts to calcify and harden that idea before it's actually become a thing in any way, you know? And so, so for me, I've stopped, I've stopped talking about what I'm working on, but currently I'm really think I know what I'll work on next, but, but I'm not sure because like, for me, I I like to, the problem has never really been having ideas. It's deciding which one is worth following, you know, like with, with this book, you know, games was a great subject because it drew so many other subjects and other things I wanted to talk about to it, you know, but it's hard to find a great subject, you know, I think. And so anyway, and I don't know if something's going to be a great subject usually until I've kind of gone down the road with like researching and thinking about like the people in it. And you don't know, even if you have a great subject, you don't really have anything until you, you know, draw some people to it, i.e. characters, you know, (laughs) I'm sorry I asked. I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> I bet you. I don't mind. I actually like answering the question. Um, I'm sorry I don't have like like no, a great it, answer. Like no, I'll I'm be kidding. writing a book about clowns. I'm you kidding, know, next. I'm kidding.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I actually love the idea of authors on tour coming up with a p- p- like a fictitious book that they're never planning on writing and just always answering with that.
2: It's kind well, of well. It's funny about that. I like anyway. One of my books is becoming it is a movie and it'll be out you know this week. But basically. You know, I had to write some fake book titles for the author in that. And um, one of the fake book titles made me think, oh, I think I know how I could solve this idea that I had many years ago. And so I think that's the idea that I I will work on. But sometimes coming up with something fake, I think, can lead you to something real. That would be the danger of the fake book. You would pitch it so much that you were like, now I kind of want to read this thing, you know? I'm actually writing this (laughs) novel called Blank, and it's about like an author with this blank
0: book. But anyway, I won't give you. Cool. I won't give any more away because I haven't written it yet. I've only written half. Anyway. I had so much fun chatting with you. This is awesome. Thank you for your time. And Thank you so much for having me. Uh I'm gonna come up with different photo storage things now that I am as horrified as I am by how many pictures that I have on my <laughs> desktop. And this may be why it runs so slowly. Anyway. It may be why. It
2: it's may be possible. Why.
0: Okay. I'm going to teach so my kids. I'm teaching my kids mash later today. That is now on my to-do list after
2: this. <laughs> you need to make sure to update it, of course, so that it doesn't have like the retro values. Of, I know. Like, I know. You know I'm going to come up with some new categories
0: or you can send it, send me an email. <laughs> right. <laughs> a, a new right. game for you to include here. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Nice Bye. talking to you. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.